Patrick Mahomes recently wins the Super Bowl last week. That's why Pastor Kirk still isn't here. He's on cloud nine. We're trying to find where that is. <clears throat> Bring him back to church. But Patrick Mahomes, people are like, you're so great. Then he says, no, Tom Brady's the GOAT. And I know that's an acronym for greatest of all time, but back in my day, somebody calls you a GOAT and you're going to take a swing at them. You know, and when you have teenagers at your house, you have to learn to realize that just words don't mean what you thought. I've learned that if something is lit or fire, don't grab the fire extinguisher. It's a good thing. If you're salty, that means that you're in a bad mood. I hear that a lot. I'm like, come on, man. And I think teenagers just make up words, too. One day my son said to me, he goes, Dad, your shoes are cooked. I should have made like a filet of soul joke, but that probably wouldn't have gone real well. But I'm like, what do you mean they're cooked? He goes, dude, look at them. And I'm like, they're a couple years old. They're in good shape. And he kind of rolls his eyes, and I look down. The tread was so bad. Cross-country skis have more tread. I'm serious. It was nuts. And so teenagers, if you have some of your own, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't have any, you're just like, oh, they continually butcher the English language. But they actually have a statement that I want to talk about this morning that I think is absolutely fantastic and how we can hold that for ourselves as a filter, as a, as a guard or something to hang on to as we apply it in our lives. And that's this expression, take the L. Take the L means you're going to take the loss. Like if my son and I are playing basketball against each other, we're playing Madden against each other. We're like, yo man, you're going to take the L. We'll say that. Because in, in statistics, you know, W and L, that's the win and loss column. So if somebody says you're going to take the L, that means I'm going to give you the loss and you're going to take it. I want to talk today about how the phrase take the L is something that you should apply to every aspect of your life. With that being said, I invite you to please rise now for the reading of our sermon text. Our sermon text today is going to come from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the, of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. This ends our reading. You may be seated. This text is a perfect juxtaposition of what I want to talk about today and why I titled the sermon, Take the L, Take the Loss. Because in this text here, we see a beautiful contrast of first off, verse 9, this king. This incredible descriptor of this king who cares for the gain of the land in every way. So this king is everything that is good, and this king we can incorporate as being God, whom Scripture describes as everything that is good. This king who we learn about we find in God's word. This king, as we learn about, is the word, as John refers to Jesus. And then in verse 8, we see right there the descriptor of what worldly leaders look like. And so you see right there, take the L is 
Victory is the word of God, and taking a loss is letting the L of the world come into Scripture. When your life is no longer about the word, but it's about the world, you are taking the loss. And we are going to look at Solomon's text from chapter 4, 1 through 8, and then chapter 5, 8 through 9, as we continue our series of Ecclesiastes in understanding and seeing how in every way Solomon is saying, you are taking the loss when your focus is on the world. This catchy little saying right here I came up with one morning. It's not trying to be wow-inducing or like, oh, that's an incredible connection. Instead, I just want you to understand as you look through life, is the way I'm living for the word and found in the word or is it found in the world? Because if it's found in the world, you're taking the loss. Because not only is a life lived pursuing the world, one that he leads to an eternal condemnation, but a life that's lived pursuing the world is one that is only going to leave us frustrated and miserable all of our days. That's why I'm bringing up this L concept. I want you to know that everything of this world in all reality is only ever going to end up in a loss for you. Like we pastors talk about it all the time, stop pursuing the things of this world, and yet we all continually pursue the things of this world. We are so unwilling to surrender ourselves for the greater good. Like we live life saying, you know, I've got to be right. I, need, I have to win this argument. I need to be noticed. I need more money. I need more prestige. I need more honor, pleasure, enjoy, uh, enjoyment, luxuries, whatever. We want all of these things. That's how we live our lives. Frankly, we just want the world to suit us, right? Don't tell me you've never had that thought. The world would be a better place if it just did what I wanted. The problem with that thought is, you know, is we all have that thought. Like, why do you think we're always complaining about things? The world isn't the way that we want it to be. It's not satisfying our own desires, so we complain about stuff. That's not how I would do it. I think it should be done this way. You realize there's two problems with wanting the world to be your way. There's eight billion people in the world who all want the world their way. And the second problem with that, there's people of those eight billion people that have more power, more stature than you, and they want the world their way. And they have the ability to start making it happen that way. That's what Solomon talks about here in verse one of Ecclesiastes chapter four. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. These friends, this world is nothing but oppression. It's a harsh reality, but that's a fact. Jesus makes clear and Scripture makes clear that Satan is the prince of this world. He is described in Scripture as being the father of lies, as being the thief who only comes to kill and destroy. The number one oppressor of all is the prince of this world. And what he does then as well, aside from trying to do everything his way, is he takes people with power and prestige and he has them tilt things in their favor. At all times, we are being oppressed because there's always somebody above us trying to do everything for their own gain. It's not a particularly happy thought, but frankly, if you read what Solomon's saying, it actually only gets darker in that thought. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, they have no one to comfort them. You know you've been at that place in life where life broke you and it wrecked you and it hurts 
and you're just crying out for comfort anywhere and there is none. What Solomon's saying is not only is there sometimes nobody to hear you, but the people that are oppressing you, causing you this pain, everything is going their way anyway. Everything is in their favor. So our only thought to all of this then, okay, if this world is so oppressive and this world is trying to hold us back, you know what we have to do? We have to overthrow the oppressors, right? Isn't that the thought that we should have then? There's one problem in that because if your hope is, well, things will get better if we overthrow the oppressors, historian and philosopher Will Durant described this in his book, Lessons of History. That thought pattern has always been prevalent. Let's just throw, overthrow the oppressor. And so it's happened throughout world history where the people rise up and overthrow the oppressor, oftentimes of financial disparity. Will Durant writes this, violent revolutions do not so much redistribute wealth as destroy it. There may be a redivision of the land, but the natural inequality of men soon recreates an inequality of possessions and privileges and raises to power a new minority with essentially the same instincts as the old. So if your hope is let's just overthrow the oppressor, guess what happens? A new oppressor just comes into place. If our hope is waiting for this world to correct itself, it's not going to happen. Like at best, at best, all we can hope for is that the power structures that are running things can kind of be in our favor. That's what we have to hope for right now. It's actually one of the biggest pushbacks against Christianity as we have been viewed as the oppressor in this country for quite some time now. And sadly enough, I think we need to be real, we've probably earned a little bit of that title because we have not been great at loving and serving those outside the church who are the people that we are supposed to be loving and serving. And because of that, then we should not be surprised now that they are trying to overthrow the power structures so they can be in power. And guess what? We should be even less surprised that if they do, they're not going to have a lot of sympathy for the church who they felt was oppressing them. Whether that's right or wrong, it's just human nature. It's how we've always been. And if you think that's a super bleak outlook, well, wait a second, where's our hope? Bad news for you, Solomon is actually reiterating the fact that there isn't any hope in this. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Are you getting what's being said here? Are you taking L when you're placing your hope in this world? Solomon is like, you know what? The people that have never been born, they got it the easiest because they don't know the hot mess that we got going on here. And not as this is to say that they're like, there can't be some, some good things in life or that life, if life is all bleak and miserable. Solomon is simply saying this, like the best that we have, the best that we can hope for in this world it's just that the oppressor that's in charge is kind of in our favor. That's all the hope that we have. Not exactly a super great outlook. So in knowing this, then, we have two thoughts that Solomon addresses. The first thought would be, okay, fine. If the system isn't for me and the system is not for us, then what I need to do is I'm going to get me mine, I'm going to focus on me, I'm going to work hard, and I'm just going to cash in and ride the wave of good living. And that sounds really good, but Solomon points out the problem with that. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon is telling you there, all your work, all your toil, everything you're striving for, you're just trying to keep up with the Joneses. Now you can say, well, that's not really my motivation. You can believe that. You know, hey, pastor, no, I'm trying to work hard and accumulate things that I want just for me and my sake. But let's be real. 
This is what I always kind of laugh at about this, right? We got to be real. Our existence mirrors the culture that we're immersed in. Look around your house at all the silly stuff that you have, all the silly stuff that you're trying to accrue, all the silly stuff you're trying to work for, how much of it really matters. And by this, use this kind of test, right? If when you walk out of here, the world ended and we're like the last 5% of people that survived, of all this stuff that you find so important right now, how much of it is going to keep you alive over the next year? Is your cell phone going to keep you alive? Your Alexa, a Swiffer, your Netflix password? I brought up Swiffer because they're the lamest handles ever. Like you're not defending yourself with one of those things, right? But all these things that we think that are so important that matter so much now, if push came to shove, these things don't matter one bit. But yet we spend our lives pursuing these things. And I'm just as guilty of this. And it drives me nuts that I am absolutely enslaved to living how society dictates that I should live. And we're all there. We are not free. We are willingly enslaved by society. Talk about taking an L to be willingly enslaved. To be completely controlled in our spending habits, our desires, our labors. And again, you can deny this all you want. But if we were to go through your house and see everything you have, if we were to follow all your spending patterns, is it going to look different than everybody else's? It's all going to look the same. So that's one thought then. If we have this oppressive system, I should live in it trying to get me everything that I can for me. And Solomon's like, well, that's kind of silly. So the counter thought would be fine that I'm not going to do anything. Then I'm going to make the system take care of me. The problem is Solomon addresses that thought as well. And it's a thought that doesn't really resonate too much here in the Midwest because most of us were raised in the Midwest in the mentality of you want something, you've got to work for it. But Solomon is telling you though, if you're thinking, you know what, fine. I'm just going to not do anything. I'm not going to contribute to this broken and flawed system. He addresses this thought as well. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Whether our system is corrupt or not, whether we want to support it or not, Solomon's saying, if you want to, if you want to eat, you've got to work. The fool folds his hands means I'm not going to use my hands for anything useful. I'm just going to keep them tucked in. And his point is, well, if you're not going to use your hands for anything useful, then how are you supposed to reap any of the fruits that are supposed to come from the labors of your hands? Which means when it comes to collecting the fruits of your labors, there will be none, so all you have left to eat is yourself. I would describe that as taking an L. Self-consumption is rarely ever a win, right? So Solomon comes back to the point that, okay, so we do have to work. That's a reality. We have to work in this world, and I'm not really talking about our jobs, I'm just talking about our focus, what we spend all of our time and all of our energy doing. And Solomon goes on to say this in verse 6 then, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. You see, he's telling us, friends, how we should see life, how we should live our lives. How the work in our lives need to be done. Again, this isn't our nine-to-five job. This is in all aspects of our life that is part of it. By a handful of quietness, you know what Solomon is telling us here, is it's just better to be prudent in everything. It's better just to focus on what's important in everything than to spend all your time and energy going after those things that just don't matter. Because our biggest issue, and he'll come on, he'll bring this up then, is when is enough enough? That's the great lie that we all have. If I just gain more, if I just accomplish this, if I just get there, when is the line of if 
When do you know if you've ever really reached that point when if is enough? Because we already know by human nature, the more money people make, the more money they spend. We are never going to be satisfied here in this world, no matter how hard we strive. Doesn't that sound like taking an L? When you can't find any true satisfaction for everything you're doing? Solomon reiterates this point further on. In verse 8, he goes on to say, his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Solomon describes two different kind of people who work and toil for their riches. Either those that are alone, and he's like, well, then what are you working for? You're just wasting your whole life for nothing. Or are you working and toiling for somebody else? But the problem is in Ecclesiastes 2.18, and Pastor Kirk preached on this a couple weeks back, he says, it doesn't matter if you're toiling for somebody else, because all you're doing is giving all of your time and your wisdom and your energy, ultimately all of your efforts into something that the people that are going to get it did not put the same amount of effort into. You know the basketball player Shaquille O'Neal? He's just a walking quote. I love that guy. He said this one time. One time his kids said, we're rich. And he said, no, you're not rich, I'm rich. It's not that it's bad to work to try to build up and help your kids or your grandkids or help your future generations. Solomon's whole point is, but if that's your end goal, if that's your ultimate pursuit in life, you're just creating something for somebody that never really understands you're put in the same amount of toil. Like this world is full of plenty of rich kids that don't understand what hard work looks like, that don't understand how the world works. Solomon is asking you to just rein it in a little bit and stop and say what really is most important for your toils. It's one thing to build up for your family and save for them, but what's more important? Making sure your kids have all the finest things when you pass on? Or is to say, I hope I can provide my kids with something, but more importantly, I want to invest my time and my love, my support, and my energy into my kids to grow them, to be strong human beings in their faith in the Lord. There's so much more value in that. So why take the L to spending your whole life and all your time and all your energy working for somebody else? Especially when they don't even notice it and they didn't put in that kind of work. So then here comes that contrast then. This is where that the world and the word come together. And this is where I see again that juxtaposition as I read about earlier, how there's the contrast between world and word, uh, word and what the two look like. This is what made this text so great about the difference between taking the loss and receiving the win. So here's verse 8 again, and this is a perfect summation of our world today. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high officials watch by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Like, why are we so surprised that the world is terrible? Solomon's not. He's like, you should expect it. C.S. Lewis said this in The Abolition of Man. He had this great quote of this. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chess and expect to them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. Especially love that last part there. You see, if we as the church are not teaching and modeling godly behavior given to us by the word and what it looks like, why in the world are we shocked then when the world doesn't live that way? Well, they should know better. Why? 
Human nature doesn't want to know better because we ourselves struggle living with it. We ourselves struggle surrendering to God's word and living the call that he has given to us to say it's not about me. So if we can't do it here, how do we expect the world out there to do it? See, guys, that's the loss that we take from the world again. I got to get me mine. We can say we're different, but when we live that way, we're just showing the world this is how we're supposed to live. If we're not calling out the difference, then we should not be amazed and surprised when there's oppression of the poor and violation of justice and righteousness. It's just human nature. The world is filled with all these kinds of problems. But now here's the beauty of this text then. This is the separation of the world and the word. Everything up until verse 9 has been honestly hopeless. And then we get this. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. I want to quick preface this, though. I've read through multiple commentaries on this. Some people read verse 9 differently. It's actually debated how verse 9 is read. But I liked this reading of it. It's how I first read it. Verse 9 is a positive descriptor. Because in verse 8, we've been reading about the oppressors who just simply do for their own. And in verse 9, it's describing now, but this is a gain for a land in every way. Notice the oppressor is about himself. This is a gain in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields, meaning my king is down there with me, making sure the land is providing for, making sure everybody is provided for, making sure that all is well. You see, instead of somebody abusing power for their own gain, the king here, his gain is for the land and for the all. This tells me that you have a king that is willing to do whatever it takes possible for the sake of the whole. Ecclesiastes up to this point, and you've probably seen this now, has made very clear that we are slaves to this world. We are slaves to the power structures and we are slaves to our own desires and how it's all for naught. None of it matters in the end. It's all empty. You know, there's that, that saying that he who dies with the most toys wins. No, he who dies with the most toys still dies. So why spend your whole life and all your time and your energy pursuing the most toys when it's not going to matter in the end anyway? Paul talks about the hopelessness of all of that. In Romans 6, 21, Paul says this. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things in which you are now ashamed? You know, before when you spent all your time trying to accumulate and work for the empty stuff of this world, what fruit were you getting out of that? Because for the end of those things is death. Why are we pursuing the things that lead to death? Why are we pursuing things that it's a guaranteed loss? He flips this around and says this. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. This is a beautiful descriptor then. Why be enslaved to something that leaves in a loss when you'll be enslaved to serving God and what he means by this, all the positive things that come from giving your life over to God. Because the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Remember, the toils of the world lead to nothing. This is sanctification, a better you and eternal life with God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see the difference between these two things. What do you want to be enslaved to? The empty pursuit of this world or the things of God which promises eternal life through Jesus Christ? 
I don't know about you, but I want to follow a king that has already said, I care about the good of the land, the good of the whole. The king that, by the way, we're talking about here being God, the only one that actually truly deserves all the power, all the honor, the only one who everything truly belongs to him, and yet, he's the one that comes and says, I will do what it takes for your sake. Which means our king came and hung up on a cross and took the L for us. Knowing that that's an L, which is death that we cannot conquer. He himself is victorious over that. And his victory over death now is our victory over death. He has promised us these great things. How do we know that? It's found in his word. His word which points to everything about him, eternal life with him. His word points to how his rule will be different than the world because he will reign with justice and righteousness. His word points to the fact that eventually we will come at a point in time where we are with God forever where there is no more toil. Nothing is in vain. Everything is made right. And it's all this way because the king cares for you. The oppressors of this world don't. They care for themselves. So how do we do this, right? Like we know this world is a dumpster fire, but it's what we live in every day. It's all we see, it's all we know. How do we navigate life in a dumpster fire then? First off, let's understand this world is a dumpster fire. Listen to how Paul described it in 1 Timothy 2 through 5. Sorry, 1 Timothy 6, 2 through 5. He says this part, teach and urge these things. I love that, the importance. Like, teach and urge this. This is important, you guys. If anyone teaches the different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Do you hear his descriptor of what the dumpster fire looks like when you don't have God in it? All of these descriptors were found in there. Like you read through that list and you get tired just picturing yourself in that kind of drama and turmoil and just chaos. Like that right there is the definition of taking the L. When that's what life is about. When you're trying to fill yourself with the temporal, that's all that you have. The temporal will never satisfy us. And instead, Paul flips it around to this in verses six to eight. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. If you brought nothing into this world, you're taking nothing out of it. Why do you waste your life trying to accrue things that just aren't important? Why do we think that things are more important than at least having a roof over our head, clothes on our back, food on the table, and the love of those around us? Isn't that good enough? Why do we think everything else matters? Why do we spend so much time and energy on it? Everything else leads to the L. It's a loss. Because the world tells you that's where your fulfillment is found. Solomon has taught us this entire time. There's no, there's no fulfillment found in that. You're constantly chasing it. So friends, I want to leave this encouragement with you today. My wife gets so mad when I say this. Stop caring. I say, I don't care all the time. She gets really mad. She says, that sounds so dismissive. And I said, no, I don't care. And then she realizes, but you're right. 
Like, I don't care to let a losing world drive my life. I don't care about letting pride drive my life. Instead, we should learn to apologize. We should learn to give generously, not just of money, but of time. We should learn to love more and forgive without limits. These are all messages found in the Word. The world teaches us the exact opposite of that. Christ himself modeled this type of behavior. You go to Philippians 2, and it's such a beautiful descriptor then of how the Word says that we should look in not caring about this world. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, read this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only at his own interests, but also the interests of others. By the way, it says the reason we should do that is because Christ did not come to satisfy his own desires. The Lord of the universe gave up his own desires. I think we can model in that. You notice in there, it's not about you anymore. It's the surrender of self, just as Christ did. And here's why, ultimately, friends. Paul goes on then of Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among who you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. The world is dark. We are called to be lights into the world because of the word. So I'll leave you this today, friends. Why take the loss that the world has to give when you can have the victory that Christ won for you?